It's uh, just a wonderful thing to sing the Lord's praises together and be reminded of, of His great works that relate to us. That relate to us. Turn to First Peter chapter uh, three with me, uh, with me again this morning, and we've kind of camped out a little bit on this paragraph. There's great, great concepts in here that that we need to grasp, and hope is one of those because it's hope that really equips us to make a defense for those who ask us of our hope within us. The hopeful, powerful testimony of of the least of the saints is powerful and awesome. You don't have to be a a, a theologian to explain your hope that you have in the midst of a fallen, corrupted world. You don't have to be. It's great if you are. We can learn from those who are. But all of us are called to make a defense of the hope that is in us about the gospel. I'm going to read verses 13 through 17 one more time this morning. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But set apart the Lord God in your hearts, or set apart the Lord Christ in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. That is a wonderful, wonderful uh, paragraph. There's much instruction in there. So we are always uh, to be ready to give a defense of the hope that is in us, to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. You see, we don't know when someone will make that comment to us or make that comment about us. (laughs) We don't know when that will happen, but it surely will. Those moments are going to come. And I think the Lord directs the lives of his own children for that very thing. You know, the Lord has to get Paul in the prison so Agrippa can hear the gospel, right? Absolutely. That was not off of God's plan for the great apostle to spend time in those prisons. The Lord orchestrated all of that so that the gospel would be brought before the Roman guard and those that are great and all of this. And our lives are no different. The Lord is going to orchestrate your life and my life such that those opportunities are going to come. People are going to make those comments or They're going to ask those questions. And we are called to be ready. To be ready at that moment to give a defense and a reason for the hope that is in us. 
So it's all of our calling to get ready and be ready. So here's your New Year's sermon, okay? New Year's goal is to be further ready and get ready, okay? So good, all right? So we've addressed New Year's, and our, our goal individually and as a church is to be ready and become more equipped to be ready. Let's, let's do that in 2024, and, and that'll be a good thing. So that's, that's our, that's our, I'm not slamming New Year's, okay, but that's our, that's our New Year's, uh, New Year's uh, message for today. But we'll sing some New Year's songs next Sunday, actually. So how do we become ready? Well, first, the context, of course, tells us we come, we become ready by living with Christ as Lord in our hearts. That is the significant part of always being ready. Living as Christ, as Lord in our hearts. That will be the foundation of being ready. Absolutely. When you live that way, you feel a loyalty to the King and His kingdom. Your calling is not to be ashamed of your King, but the opposite, it is to confess Him. So when you're When you're living with Christ as your King and Lord, you feel a loyalty to Him. And out of that loyalty to Him, you have to confess Him and not shrink. You see? So He's your Lord. You're living consciously as loyalty to Him and His kingdom. That will equip you. You will confess Him. You know that you must confess Him. He's your King. You are to be loyal to your King, none other than the servant King who has served you. That's the foundation of being ready. Setting apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. Second, how are we ready? Well, We are to be giving a defense to everyone who asks us for the hope, the hope that is in us. This living hope must be operating in our lives. Half of the hymns we sang this morning talked about that hope, didn't they? Absolutely, they did. Amazing grace. There's two, at least two verses in that hymn that are about that living hope, isn't it? Right? And the, and the last verse ends that way, when we've been there 10,000 years. That hymn is full of this New Testament hope. We have to have that hope active, and it is to affect the way we live. That living hope must be operating in our lives. We are different because we have this living hope to which we were born again into through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are defending our experiencing of a living hope. We are confident of good things, of great things to come. Are you? Are you confident? of great things to come? Brothers and sisters, I tell you, 
If you're in Christ, there are great things to come. (laughs) That's right. Beyond what you can imagine or think, they are coming because He is coming. That's the hope. That's New Testament hope. A living hope. We exude and ooze a certainty that God will land us in the promised land, in the new heavens and earth, just like Joshua and Caleb. Uh, They had hope. And they said, let us possess the land, for He will surely give it to us. Okay? They had that hope. And as Jesus said, do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Okay? That's right. That's hope. That's a living hope. And we are to defend that experience. This Christian confidence is in sharp contrast with the world's despair and nagging uncertainty. Those two things describe most unbelievers. Despair or nagging uncertainty. The Christian is very different. The despair and the suffering is all moderated. And there's a certainty about the future. That makes you very different if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've not cooled off by loving the world or something or putting your hope in the wrong places. But I'll tell you, God's a jealous God. You put your hope in the wrong places and He's going to knock those things out. And that's for your good and for my good. We put our hope in the wrong places. That's not healthy. He's going he's to knock those out. And that's the gracious thing that He does. So, we are, we are defending this experience, this, this experience of hope, which distinguishes us so much from, from those around us that, that are lost and still in darkness. You know, not only do we have this certainty kind of hope, but we experience this hope As Peter says, even though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. We experience that hope and exude it in the midst of the trial. You know, go visit our brother Bill. (laughs) Okay? Go visit Bill. You'll, you'll, You'll see that. You'll see that hope in the midst of a long, protracted trial in his case. And maybe it'll rub off on you a little bit. Peter says that if need be, we have been grieved by various trials. When we read the New Testament, when we read our New Testaments, we realize that the hope that Peter is referring to is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And if you didn't hear last week's message, you need to get it. The hope that he's talking about is about the second coming of Jesus Christ. With that, we have certainty. 
about. We don't know whether he's coming tomorrow or a thousand years from now. We really don't. And he taught us to think that way. And that's immaterial to the certainty of our hope. Peter said that in chapter 1. We were exhorted, what? To rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the Christian hope. It's at the re- we're resting it fully, the grace that is yet to come to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That, that's His second coming. When He is revealed at the second advent. Okay, we've just celebrated the first advent. Well, let me tell you, there's going to be a second advent of the Son of God. And that's our hope. It rests fully on the fact that He is coming back. The New Testament consistently defines our hope has a certainty that the Lord Jesus is returning for us, His church. We considered three of six passages a few weeks ago defining our hope because I want us to just see how strong the New Testament is that focuses the center of this hope is on the Lord's coming. Well, we'll do three more this morning to complete those. First Thessalonians chapter 1, 9 through 10. We read this. Uh, Paul writing here to the Thessalonians, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. Paul's talking about when they brought the gospel to Thessalonica, how, how they were received by the Thessalonians. What manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven. They immediately had that hope. They turned from these dumb idols to the living God, and they began to wait for the Son of that living God to return. There. They were converted. They understood. The Gospel includes a message about the second coming of Christ. And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. They will be delivered from that eschatological tsunami of wrath by Jesus Christ when He comes. That was their living hope. It began at the time of their conversion. Philippians 3, 18-21. Three, 18-21. I'm back up here a little bit in the context, and, and I'm going to be reading at verse 18. Paul expresses a grief first. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you weeping. They are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame. And listen to this description, the last one. Who set their mind on earthly things, but 
Our citizenship is in heaven. See the contrast? The ungodly set their mind on earthly things. But what about us? But our citizenship, what? Is in heaven. From which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body according to the power by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. That's the Christian hope. Okay? Our minds are not set on earthly things. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for the return of our Savior. And He will transform our lowly, I like the King James translation, our vile bodies into the glorious image of His resurrection body. Okay? With that power that He has, not only to transform us, but the power that He has to subdue all things to Himself. That's our hope. That's our hope. That's the center of it. One more passage. Second Peter, uh, Second Peter three thirteen. Second uh, <clears throat> Peter three thirteen, uh, uh, verse twelve. Uh, uh, let's begin reading in verse eleven. Therefore, since all these things are to be dissolved. Peter's been talking about the second coming and the day of the Lord. Since all these things are to be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, are looking for new heavens and new earth wherein dwells righteousness. There it is. Okay? That's our perspective. That's that hope. And that affects, it seasons everything in our lives. And that's what makes us different. In a world that is in the dark and dying. Cultivate this hope and it will empower your witness in all kinds of situations. That's what Peter is saying. Okay? Now, I realize that the core of marshalling a reasonable defense of our hope is to defend Christ's second coming. Defend His resurrection and His second coming. That's central to this hope. The unbeliever looks on and asks, why are you so confident and secure regarding good things to come? You can answer, my Lord and Savior is returning for me. <laughs> That's why? What? Let me tell you about Him. He's coming for me. I'd love to tell you about Him. He could be your Savior too. 
He can save you just like he saved me. If he forgave me, chief of sinners that I am, he can surely forgive you. Just just one minute. You can say all that in one minute. And then you'll see how they respond, you know. The door might open or the door might get slammed in your face. You don't know. (laughs) You don't know. That's up to the Lord. See, that's that's how you can how you can respond. Um, you know, why are you so confident? Well, that's why. Is that reasonable? Well, let's talk about that. We think it's reasonable because blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. What through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is reasonable. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, my hope is absolutely reasonable. And you know what? He did rise from the dead, and I believe He did. We could talk about that too if you'd like to. (laughs) Would you like to know why I believe Jesus rose from the dead? I'd love to tell you. And you evaluate it. Don't believe it because I've said it. You think it through. That's pretty easy, huh? My hope is based on the fact that he did rise from the dead. And you know, you're inching along more and more into the gospel, aren't you? (laughs) Well, why did he die in the first place? Well, you know, that's a good question. I'd like to tell you why he died in the first place, and then I could tell you about his resurrection. You can do all that. So let's consider defending these matters further. And what I'm, what I'm giving you here is not complete by any, by any means. It's just uh, places where we can start. You know, where do we start? Where does our defense of our hope start? There's more than one place to start. Multitude approaches uh, uh, of ways to start. And that, you know, it depends on the person you are addressing. It depends on the situation that the person is in. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways to start, but God help us to start, okay? <laughs> you know, in the, case, in the case that Peter's representing, that someone has asked, why are you different? Uh, that's a great open door, you know? And that, that, those can either be non-hostile or they can be hostile. And I want to address both of those, the non-hostile open door or the hostile open door. They can be either. Now, but know this, you know, wherever you start, you, you know where you're going. Keep in mind where you're going. <clears throat> and don't let anything knock you off track. <clears throat> where you're going is to the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. That's where you're going. You know, whether you start a discussion about gay marriage or politics or some tsunami or a natural disaster, it doesn't matter where you start, but you have to keep it in your mind that where you want to go is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And don't let anything sidetrack you off of that. Now, if it relates to going to him and we need to talk about the authority of the New Testament or something, sure. But your goal is, I'm going to talk about the Son of God. Don't, don't get off that track. 
Okay? Be gracious and always figure out how to turn it back to Him. Okay? Otherwise, you will get, you'll end up everywhere else, but not centered in the gospel. So, so you have to practice and learn to do that. And uh, you'll be surprised how many subjects can lead right back to Christ. <laughs> I mean, it all does. <laughs> so however you start, but just keep focused where you're, where you're trying to go. Okay, and uh, so let's assume that first this is a this is a non-hostile encounter. Okay, this is you know this is like the guy at my job years ago that said you know I you know nothing ever seems to bother you. Okay, that's a non-hostile open door. What a wonderful open door. Well, let me tell you why nothing ever seems to bother me. That's not true, but let's just assume it is. You know, that's a non-hostile open door. So, so, you know, these days, these days I like to start indicating that God sent His Son into our world seeking reconciliation with us. Okay, we're the postmodern relational people. Relationships are very important to all the young people in our postmodern culture. You know, it's relationships and we can start there and introduce them to the greatest of all relationships. So I like to say, you know, God sent His Son into our world seeking reconciliation with us. Our relationship with God is the most important relationship there is. And you know what? It's broken. Don't listen to all these people that are drumming in your ears that just God loves you and all of this stuff. Our relationship with Him is broken. Big time. And it needs to be reconciled. Well, why is it broken? Oh, it's broken because we are authority disrespecters. What? We disrespect God's authority all the time. We don't do what He calls and commands us to do. And not only that, what He tells us not to do, we double down and do it all the more. We are rebels to God's authority. Now you notice what I did. I did not use the word sin because that's immediate pejorative turnoff. What did I do? I'll just give you a definition of sin instead of using the word. That's not being manipulative. There's this caricature and all, oh, don't call me a sinner. Okay, I'll call you a rebel. Would you like that? I, I'm actually just defining. Initially, I don't use the word sin. I just defined it and illustrated it that we are sinners. And then you can say, yeah, you know, that, that not respecting God's authority, you know, thumbing your nose in, his, in the face of His commands, that's what the Bible calls sin. And we're all sinners. And that's why our relationship with God is so desperately broken. Okay? And then you can go on from there. There's a lot of ways to start. 
God seeking to reconcile us to Himself, to restore that relationship. And, and you know, then you can, a lot more can be said. So, you know, you can go on. Our world is a dark place. God has sent His Son to light the place up, right? <laughs> We're in a very dark, dark place, and He sent His Son to put a blazing light and light this place up. And that's exactly what He's done in my life. You know, you can, you can testify to your own experience. I was in a dark place. Maybe you were. Maybe you're one of those that was contemplating suicide. A lot of young people in our, in our uh, culture go through that. Late teens, early 20s. You know, they're contemplating suicide. And yeah, I was in a dark place. I mean, you can say that. I was in a really dark place. And praise God, you know, He sought a relationship with me and forgave me. Say, you know, you're all different. You have different experiences. And that will come into play how you talk to people. You know, we don't all have the same experiences by any means. But uh, there's a time and place where, where you br- bring, in, bring in your experience, you know. And that will help connect you to others that have, have had that experience. So those are just some more suggestions of how to, you know, how to do this. Uh, you know, the Gospels are first-rate historical accounts regarding Jesus. Tell people that. You know, the, these Gospels are first-rate historical accounts regarding Jesus, whom I believe is the Son of God as He claimed to be. You know, shouldn't, uh, shouldn't we give Him a hearing? You know, Say it that way. Jesus is alive. He's living. Shouldn't we give Him a hearing? Okay? As opposed to the Bible says. It's okay if you say the Bible says. But say it. Shouldn't we give the Lord Jesus a hearing? Well, how do we do that? Well, read the Gospel. Give Him a hearing. Before you listen to everybody else telling you about Him. And what I'd rather do with you rather than tell you about Him, I'd rather read some of His words to you. That's what you want to do. Get them reading the Gospel. Get them reading Luke or John. Introduce them to Jesus' words. Don't just talk about Jesus. Introduce them to Jesus' words. If you can get that far with someone. But in a personal relationship you've developed, you know, maybe in one or two or three account encounters, you, you, you can get that far. Or tell them, you know, read, read a gospel and write down your questions as, as you read it. And, I, and I'd love to interact with you. I mean, most, so many people in our culture today are biblically illiterate people. I mean, I never read the Bible until I was 21, 22 years old. I had no idea what's in there. And I could care less what was in there. And someone got me reading the Bible. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. She's in glory now. Okay. That's right. Yeah. That's what she told me to do. (laughs) 
And that's what I'm telling you to do. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, you're going to talk about Scripture, historical, you know, this historical validity. You should, you should prepare yourself. Learn more and more about the historical reliability of the New Testament. That's a way to get more and more equipped. And we probably should be doing more in our church to equip, equip one another, equip us. Uh, we should be probably be doing more of that. I want to talk to my fellow elders about that. This passage has made me think about that. Are we really equipping you all? Or are we equipping one another enough okay, to fulfill this paragraph that Peter uh, sets here in front of us? So... Yeah, be ready, you know, be ready to tell people why you believe Jesus ro- ro- you know, rose from the dead. Be acquainted with the historical records of the New Testament, the gospel, the eyewitnesses account. Tell people, now you need to examine the evidence carefully. Go ahead, examine it all you can. Have simple answers to the common attempts to disprove the resurrection. You know, there's three or four common attempts over and over again. They're kind of foolish, you know, and maybe if you could do it with a little room, like, yeah, those guys are really smart that believe that. You know, there might be a place for some sarcasm sometimes. You know, yeah, Jesus stole the body. You know, that's really a... Really a reasonable theory, right? (laughs) Well, no, there's no reasonableness in in those theories. There just isn't uh, when you read the historical accounts. And so it it would be good, you know, to know those things. You don't always have to use them, but there's times when you should use them. We should be able to answer those kinds of questions. Uh, You know, have simple answers to those common attempts to disprove the the resurrection. And here what will happen is you'll discover if a person is committed to naturalism at all cost. Okay? If you start talking about the resurrection, and it really is historically reliable, and it's really reasonable to take this seriously, you'll discover if a person is committed to naturalism at all costs, because with such a person, it doesn't matter how much evidence you produce, they will not believe. If their presupposition, if their going in assumption is naturalism, there's nothing but the material universe, there's no supernatural, there's nothing beyond the material, if that's their committed, hardened position, it doesn't matter how much evidence you multiply, they won't believe. So you need a different approach. And probably with someone that's committed to naturalism that way, you need a negative apologetic. You need an apologetic to show them you might as well slit your throat. And if you feel like ending your life, that's just as rational as living it out. Welcome to the abyss. Okay? So someone that's that committed, you'll approach a different way with a negative apologetic to show, you know, answer the fool, what? According to his folly. That's what you're doing. Okay, we're committed to naturalism. Let's see how that works in the world and let's see where that ends. Okay, that's answering the fool according to his folly. And that's a little more difficult than the other thing, but we should practice and learn how to do that. Okay. So, where were we? Okay, about, yeah, about, about the resurrection. 
And, you know, be sure to be prepared to explain that Jesus' death and resurrection is according to the Scriptures. It's according to the Scriptures. You know, you can say it like this. You know, Jesus himself said, Moses wrote about me. Jesus said that. And Jesus said that if you believe Moses, then you would believe me. And so Jesus has given us the challenge. And you know what we find? As we start reading that Old Testament, it really is about this man, Jesus of Nazareth. He's all over the place in that Old Testament. And then you slip in, which, by the way, was written, you know, 1,500 years ago. You know, you might slip that in, put a little evidence in there. Okay, we'll go on and on. So uh, we do this sharing, we do this preaching. I'm preaching the gospel to you right now, this morning. Okay. Also, be ready to explain the logical conclusions of believing. The, be ready to explain the logical conclusions of believing that Jesus did not rise. You know, challenge the unbeliever to defend his unbelief. You know, this challenge thing isn't always just toward us. They're challenging our belief. We turn that around. Okay, justify your unbelief. Challenge them to give a rational defense of their unbelief in the world in which they live. And don't let up. You justify your unbelief. You're asking me to justify my belief. I'm asking you to justify your unbelief that it's rational. Because it is not. Okay? It is not rational. Unbelief in God is not rational. And we should be able to give that challenge. That, that takes some work. Maybe that takes a little more thinking. Okay? But the issue is not just us defending our faith. They need to defend their faith. And their faith is they believe in unbelief. <laughs> okay, that's their faith. And, and uh, we need to turn that around at times and challenge them re- re- regarding that. But there's a lot of people that you won't need to do that. I mean, there, there's a certain percentage, but there's a lot of people that are rough and tumble in this lost, sinful life that, that you don't need to do that. So, yeah. You know, if Jesus didn't rise, one must prove that all these records are false, non-historical, even contrived, and that so many witnesses are either insane, evil, or they are simply de- deceived. Okay? If Jesus didn't rise, go at it. That's what you need to prove. You know, if you want to be dealing with the historical argument then that's what you need to prove historically. You know, if Jesus didn't wise, why couldn't the Jews stop, stop the New Testament witness to his resurrection? You know, the disciples didn't steal the body. They could have, reprodu- they could have produced a body. Why? I mean, the resurrection was first preached in Jerusalem. <laughs> they could go get the centurion. You know, he knows where he was crucified and they know where he was buried or they could... I mean, they couldn't stop the preaching of the resurrection. 
And they even knew Jesus' miracles because on the day of Pentecost, Jesus stood up and said, you know, this man of Jesus, uh, you know, attested to you by God who, who worked, uh, worked these signs and wonders. And Peter says, just as you yourselves know. Peter could look at that crowd of thousands from Jerusalem and he said, I don't need to prove to you the miracles that Jesus worked. You know that already. And of course they did. Now we can't make a statement like that, but he could. He knew and that that audience was filled with people who had witnessed Jesus' miracles when he preached on the day of Pentecost. They all knew he worked those miracles. You see... So, you have to explain all that away, the conversion of Saul. So, if these historical accounts are accurate, Jesus working all these miracles, you know, these accounts tell us that Jesus raised three people from the dead. How many there in the day of Pentecost do you think were that realized that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. You know, there are a lot of people. You know how we know that? Because the high priest wanted to kill Lazarus. Okay? They said, too many people know that this guy is alive and that he rose from the dead. And they began the plot to want to kill him. So, so Jesus rose Three people from the dead. Now, duh, you think that maybe he himself might rise from the dead? You know, this guy has raised other people from the dead? In other words, it's already sat that we're we're expecting something to happen. He's already raised three people from the dead. So it's not outside of the occurrences that have already been happening. So that's just, uh, we're not surprised, are we, that he rose from the dead? Neither are we surprised that he rose from the dead because of the Old Testament. See? And it's fine. People need to have those kind of questions answered, and we need to be patient with them. Some do, some don't. It just depends on, I needed those kind of questions addressed. I didn't know what was in the Bible or any of this stuff. You know, so, uh, you know, we need to be equipped and capable of... of, of or, and, and, you know, none of us have to know it all. But in the body of Christ, if I don't know, I'll go to Nathaniel. He knows, right? <laughs> or I'll go to one of you that had that experience. This is a team effort. It's a team effort. And, and I haven't had... You know, you're dealing with someone maybe that's lost a child. Right? I haven't been on that road. There's people in this congregation that have been on that road. So I can go and enlist that person. Okay? So forth. Or somebody's been, you know, on the uh, drug addiction road. Go and enlist that person to help someone else. That's how it works. That the body of Christ works that way. So, 
Okay, well, uh, we're going to have to stop. I didn't get to the hostile part of it, but let's stop. <laughs> let's pray. Oh, Lord, how, how grateful we are for the time and place when the gospel of your wonderful Son came to our ears, wherever that would be, whether it was in our own homes, uh, what a grace that is, or whether it was friends or walking into a church that preaches the gospel. Lord, thank you for sending the good news, the great news of your Son and all that he has done. And, oh, Father, thank you for promising that he is coming back, that he will return, and he is returning, to complete the work that he began in us and even in our darkened, lost world. Lord, stir up our hope. It is so easy, Father, for us in this American culture to put our hope in so many other things. And Lord, even as your people, we are not immune to this, and we ask your forgiveness that our hope in our emotional state and all of these things at times are not in the right place. So Lord, stir up by Your Holy Spirit that vision. Lord, that vision of glory that Nathaniel gave us this morning. <laughs> Give us that vision. Um, of the hope that you've given to us through the resurrection of your Son. Help us see that. Be reminded of that. And go to the Scriptures to read His promises that cannot fail. Thank you. We do ask, Lord, that you would equip us further to be loyal to our King. Help us in that regard, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.